Welcome to the Platform to Perform podcast, the podcast for athletes, coaches, and anyone looking to perform at their highest level. If performance is your goal, we aim to provide you with the platform to perform. I'm your host as always, Todd Davidson, and on episode 18 of the Platform to Perform podcast, I have my first returning guest, uh, my powerlifting coach, Charlie Key. In episode 13, myself and Charlie spoke about powerlifting for the non-powerlifter, which was basically the difference between using the powerlifts uh, as a competitive athlete versus using the powerlifts to get stronger. Uh, and today we're going to be talking all things lockdown fitness. So we're going to be talking about dealing with athletes with differing levels of motivation, given our current circumstances. We're going to be talking about the difficulties that non-barbell athletes are going to face during this time and how to counteract those. And finally, we're going to be wrapping up with what we think trend should look like during lockdown and some things to be wary of once we get out of lockdown um but with all that aside how are you today charlie i'm not doing too badly and thank you for having me back on again we always have interesting conversations so i'm i'm looking forward to seeing where this goes wicked we're going to start with the paradox of choice so in my opinion you're going to have two types of people during lockdown so you're going to have those who have sort of been given a fitness rebirth if you will this is their time to start their fitness journey because they have no excuse of or perhaps lesser excuse of a lack of time and equally you're going to have those who think oh my god the gym is my life or for example my couch uh, my running club is my life i no longer have that what do i do um so firstly people who are let's say gym bunnies or used to training at the gym should we be buying equipment uh i'm just gonna i'll say no just don't i th- i don't think it's worth it personally but the point the point is that obviously this is not going to be ev- for forever the gyms will open re re-event, reopen eventually just remember that like they they are coming back people uh with restrictions i imagine uh but um it's difficult when something that you, you really like, it's not just an activity you do to keep fit. You like identify it as part of your, well, it is as part of your, your identity and it's been taken away from you that it's hard to, hard to do. But I would also argue that for the, that population, it's very much going to be a case of, they are not going to be the sort of people who only need to do uh, exercise at the gym and are never going to benefit from doing anything else so if anything it is the time for for, for people who have been um um what's the word i'm looking for i don't know ejected or just expelled from the gyms in the course of this um in the course of this uh, global health crisis um to do something else and they probably should do um so that's that's yeah and also equipment is expensive it is hard to find at the moment so you're probably gonna not going to have a great deal of luck with it. So, Yeah, and without meaning to burst many people's bubbles, um, as we've both uh, been aware of, the delivery times on equipment um, is not as you'd hope it would be. In no, no. Okay, you're so- sort of like ordering now for like delivery by the middle of July. So, and by which time you may, we may have re- relaxed enough and had things under control enough that you'd be back to, um, back in your, in your regular um gym by that time anyway so who knows who knows knows? so you mentioned about this being an opportunity for people or athletes to uh try something new Mm. or indeed continue training um 
So we'll use a couple of different examples, but let's just say I'm somebody who enjoys training at the gym. Uh, I like being strong. I like being uh, well, muscle, muscular. Um, what, what should those people be focusing on? Um, I, think, I think the main things that people should be focusing on, and I think this applies in some regard to the, to the former group of people you mentioned about people who want to start in the, with the extra time, but the, they should be focusing on, on doing something and, and sort of maintaining as much normality as possible with their routine because i think as well if especially if people have been working from home or if they've been furloughed it's a lot easy it's it's easy to see your day-to-day routine sort of get disrupted and when that gets disrupted your exercise habits and such might tend to slip this is something i've experienced not just from this is like i've experienced personally not just from the lockdown but from some um some health issues I had beforehand, which means I've really sort of fallen for a while, fallen out of the, um, of the rhythm of just sort of being going to the gym and lifting weights and training being just something that I did every day. You didn't have to think about it. I didn't have to force it because it was just so much part of just, it just was what I did. So like I'll, I'll clarify with my example. So the gym that I go to is in the next sort of village over. So I have to cycle there. So what I'm going to start doing is like at the times when I would normally go to the gym, I'm still going to go, I'm going to sort of pack my gym bags, get on my bike and like just cycle over there. And that as, as and that's at the time that I would normally go to the gym, like after I've been to work or something like that and then go there and then I can build in the rest of the time I'm out as the rest of my exercise by carrying on cycling Um because that's what I have access to and that's what I prefer to do um, given what I have. Um, but that's that the cycling itself, it's not important. It's the, the act of actually trying to keep or reestablish in my case, um, the underlying behaviors that enable um, sort of the consistent training in the first place. Yeah, it, it's funny because one of the pieces of advice that I typically give people who want to start their um, athletic journey or, for example, their first venture into fitness, and this often gets people, they laugh, um, but I'm like, go to the gym and spend two minutes in there. And they're like, no, 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 I've got so much motivation. You don't yeah. understand. I want to get in the best shape. Uh, and they don't really understand about the um, importance of that physical journey to the gym in terms of laying down those habits. So for people who, for example, maybe this is the first time they've heard this concept um, or maybe they're listening to you and think, well, why am I going to bother cycling to a gym that's closed to not be in the gym? Why is that important? That's important because it's all of the, all of it. It's sort of like contextual because if, if you're on autopilot, and you make the habit of getting getting ready to go to the gym and physically phys- going to the physical place, even though you can't go in or as close as is reasonable whilst maintaining all appropriate social distancing and such. Um, if you're if you're there, you're much more likely to go in anyway. I mean, I know that that sounds like common sense, but like I'm sure we've all had days. We've had long days at work. We get home. We get home later it's easy. You just want to like chuck your bag down, take your shoes off and go and like sit on the sofa and just sort of mong out for the evening. But if you, and then, but then then that happens too many times, 
then things slip further and further and you and you fall out of it fall out of it and you stop doing as much exercise whereas if it's like a habit and you just you get into the habit of physically doing the things of, of actually transporting yourself then yes. it is it is much easier then to go to yourself well i'm here now might as well do some training when once the time comes that the gyms reopen um to carry on and sort of fit it back into your routine as much as possible yeah and it's funny because that sort of habit loop works the same way like um for example me the first couple of weeks of lockdown my partner will tell you that the amount of times i made myself a cup of tea sometimes after breakfast and think well i've made myself a cup of tea might as well have half a packet of chocolate digestive biscuits. Oh, that's a lethal one. We've all been there. Yeah, the cup of tea is the trigger. How much do you think people are going to... So I'm a big... Um, or recently, my training has been very calisthenics-based. I've basically tried to adopt the same principles of strength and hypertrophy and apply them into a bodyweight program. But how much do you think people are going to struggle without having to physically go to the gym? So I know, for example, we spoke about equipment. And the main, I suppose, advantage of having equipment or having a home gym, if you're lucky enough, is that in theory, you can use it all the time. Mm. The downside of that is because you can do it all the time, some people, for example, buy a treadmill off Argos and never use it. How much do you think people will struggle without having a physical place to go to the gym, if that makes sense? I think it is because there's a lot of cues that are not necessarily internal in getting you to... um getting you to exercise and train at the right intensity obviously there's if there's people you train with regularly you won't be seeing them there's a lack of like accountability in in community and like you say if you have access to the home gym also you have to be like very very strongly internally motivated which some people are a lot of people aren't so um especially like i know lots of people tend to train with training partners or friends and having that their lack of training partner can could also be a detriment even if you do have say the the equipment somewhere in your in your home if it's if you're if you're able to exercise anytime then it's a lot easier to say to yourself i can do it later you know it's um it's it's helpful i think for a lot of people to have that sort of separate boundary between home and and sort of like exercise and training i mean obviously these are challenging times and that's not necessarily an option but i think it will it 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 generally is harder for most people to probably work out at home than it is to separate it out build a routine around it and such so you mentioned motivation there and obviously it takes a lot more intrinsic motivation than what people might realize to Mm. train when literally it's on your doorstep which kind of sounds like a paradoxical thing to say what advice would you give? So I'll give a very personal example. So for me, competing in powerlifting, yes, I love the sport of powerlifting, but it's more, that's my sort of, on this day, I have to be as strong as possible and I don't want to embarrass myself. Um, and that's why I'm motivated to train. Even though I never started that way, it gives me that sort of carrot to yeah. train. Now, we don't know when competitions will be returning. What advice would you give to someone like myself who finds themselves motivated predominantly by the thought of competition i think the most important thing to think about is you there are there are still things you can do you obviously you're not going to be you've got to think basically in terms of you one is always going to 
like there's going to be a rate of progress in whatever sort of like physical attribute you're trying to improve um and now obviously with lack of access to one's typical training facilities that's going to be reduced but you could but it doesn't have to be net like a negative you don't have to be reclining it doesn't take as much as one thinks nor necessarily all of the equipment that one used to have access to to at least stay on top of things as it very much were in in their um in regards to your sport so like you don't want to sort of almost sort of like catastrophize your your lack of progress you think oh my god i cannot train like it's all gonna go like down the drain just because i haven't like looked at a barbell in two months or something like that that's not how it's gonna go down that's not that's just not realistic and not uh, probably not physiologically viable especially given the sort of timelines over over which capacities like strength and muscular hypertrophy sort of decay they decay very slowly relatively speaking to things like very fine motor skills which obviously which is you would see like something like a piano player who they practice for hours every day because it's fine and if you don't you'll get rusty very quickly whereas muscle like it's it's a hard it's hard for and and your body as well as you have to work so hard to earn it in the first place on the other side you'll fight quite hard to keep it as well so that so mainly don't panic about that as well also you can also if you are more if you are very motivated by the competition um you've got to think is that probably if you want to do your best on your best result you think about there are other people who might be competing against who are probably going to be taking this sort of like positive attitude and this time to say right what can i work on and how how can i do it to make sure i am as far or ahead, ahead or or perhaps at least far behind as possible when when normal training and normal sports resume and you think like if he's training harder than you you're going to lose or you're going to have a worse time at the competition if you're not doing what you can you're going to have a rougher transition out of what you can do in lockdown back into your normal fitness so that's what i would say I like that a lot. Before we get on to a topic we'll touch upon later on in the podcast, which is going to be that transition out of lockdown. This is something that I think gets presented as a very black and white um, thing. Do you think that um, in terms of motivate athletes' motivation, like I almost feel a little bit guilty that, for example, now that there's no competition on the horizon – Bearing in mind, I obviously preach about being healthy, being strong, being fit. And now I'm sitting here thinking there's no competition. So I'll, I'll be honest, I had a week or two where I was feeling very sorry for myself. Fortunately, out of that hole now. Do you think <laughs> that we almost paint extrinsic motivation bad, intrinsic motivation good? Do you think there's almost a bit of a Yes, false I think, yeah, there? false dichotomy definitely is how I would frame that. They're not, there's, neither one nor the other are necessarily bad. I think it is when one is skewed far too much towards one, um, that's when it becomes an issue. Like if someone is like purely extrinsically motivated and there's, there's often those things then involve things about the, of which they can't directly control themselves. So like if your, your motivation is to win something and you don't win it, but that's that's all you've got and you can't reflect back and say well i trained super consistently and i i put forward my best effort but if you don't have that then you're going to really feel the sort of like um 
I suppose like an emotional backlog that's going to sort of hit you when when you don't achieve that. But equally, like one can almost be too intrinsically motivated and see. I've seen that we it's sometimes with people you have to if you have to say trust the process a few too many times, and but but then like things that you want to happen, like certain things you want to hear aren't aren't materializing. That's an issue as well. Because otherwise you could be sort of so like intrinsically motivated, you end up in a sort of, in a sort of like, almost like um, treading water sort of situation, I think. So that's something to be aware of. You don't want to get trapped in a sort of, a, I, I'm do I'm doing, I'm just of doing and not of um, thinking about exactly where it is that you're, you're, you want to be headed. Yeah. Funny, funny enough. Um, somebody asked, uh, Dan John, which for those uh, listeners who don't know, is a very well-respected author and strength coach uh, about his views on online training. And one of the things he said that he's come up with on one of his websites that I hadn't even thought about was uh, basically you fill in a load of criteria so then it, this um, platform can then spit out an appropriate program for you. And something I've not considered is do people want the workout to stay the same or do they want, for example, it to progress? Now, in my mind, I'm like, well, I'd always want to progress because I want to know I'm getting better. Yeah. Um, whereas some people, obviously, if you're motivated by your health and your health is okay, especially if you're in older, like let's say you're 60 years old, it's going to be very difficult to improve any reasonably well-trained 60-year-old strength and power. Um, but actually, if you're healthy and as long as your health is maintaining, then that's not necessarily a bad uh, thing. Mm. In terms of uh, so motivation... As I said, I threw my toys out the pram for a good week or so um, <laughs> and was comforted by chocolate digestives. Um, how, what advice would you give to either A, athletes trying to maintain their momentum in lockdown given the current situation, or B, mm -hmm. to coaches trying to maintain their athletes' motivation in lockdown? Obviously, so with athletes, and obviously it's, I find it difficult in this scenario to make some sort of like, proper recommendations because an athlete there's a huge range of what that could be but i think the most the most jarring thing is the actual like the taking away of or the removal rather of the actual sport and the actual competition i mean i know like things like some football leagues and such are, are starting to come back so this is a it's not quite it but it sort of it serves to like illustrate the point is that you're going to have not as much ability to train your sport itself and all of like the the sport specific skills that uh, that you need to perform at a high level or at any level as long as you are being you are doing and engaging in some form of competition so then the best thing to do is i suppose all the, the thing the best thing to do is the thing you can do first of all and i think in a lot of cases for athletes it's going to be doing a lot more sort of like general work that generally will improve an athlete's fitness when one can't engage in their sport itself about coaches though i'm not so sure this is just a difficult one for me to answer because i think my coaching experience has been is somewhat narrow in the fact that it's mostly been powerlifting and it's been obviously it's like I've only ever coached a few people at a time at the very most, and it's all been very sort of personalized and individualized. So mapping that over into how 
well, into a larger sample size is not the um, the most straightforward thing in the world. I think you just ha- you have to be like up. You just got to be upfront and honest with your with your athletes and give them an idea of saying that this is obviously we can't do this, but things we can do is is that. And then if we do that, we get better. We get better when we do come back, and then we we smash other team because they've been like lollygagging around on their ass or whatever. Lollygagging. That's uh, definitely a new phrase to me. Um, if we go back to, um, so obviously we weren't in lockdown at, um, at this point, but I remember very specifically that um, I was at my partner's for the weekend and didn't have access to a gym. And um, I was sort of uh, crying to you and saying, oh, well, I can't do, um, I think it might've been some kind of, leg hypertrophy maybe high volume squats something like that um going back to the paradox of choice and actually trying to simplify things for people um what are the so let's say you say hypertrophy or work capacity might be what people should be focusing on so we don't have any equipment how how can i still get hypertrophy without equipment and why is equipment actually not as important at this time in relation to that as we think it might be well the the if you want to make it as sort of as simple as possible without oversimplifying it's the essences of doing sufficient volume at a high enough intensity, but not like there's a threshold that one requires to go over in terms in this case. And I believe it is often defined in the, in the literature on like hypertrophy research is mostly as like proximity from failure. And like there has been papers and such like demonstrating like, hypertrophy occurring in like very very high rep sets and and in using very light loads with things like um uh blood flow restriction training as such so one does not like going heavy like in the six to eight rep range is not required the principles are of doing enough work and of doing the right kind of work and i think that whether you're going to do hypertrophy or strength that's um those are the things to be aware of and i think of all of all of the the sort of the capacities that one might train in the gym or with free weights it's probably the easiest one to at least like sort of do some of in in lockdown with limited equipment because you then you realize right so okay i know i've got to do this many sets to get the volume i need but you if you don't have as much weight you've just got to spend longer going going to failure or, or rather to proximity from failure not necessarily all the way but if it if you're if you're only doing press-ups or something that might be an option um so that's the easiest one to tackle whereas it's not it's not necessarily as easy say for what the sort of strength capacities to um to emulate the sort of training you would do without without actually having the the loads and the equipment but hypertrophy though is, is definitely one that can be um, and probably should be for a lot of people tackled um, with limited or no equipment. Yeah. And as you said, this is a massive opportunity Like for again, for someone like me who traditionally I quite like the low rep and high rest work. Um, some people would call me lazy, mm. I'd call myself mm. um, <laughs> but obviously not having physical loads to be able to, to be able to, for example, use the mechanical principle of mechanical tension when it comes to hypertrophy. So that is 
how much load you lift. So mm. that load or that total load is only one of the three principles of hypertrophy. We still have two more, one being um, metabolic stress, which is basically yeah. like the burning feeling. Uh, and the other is overall muscle damage. So as you said, um, whether we manipulate frequency and we train more often because we don't have the time cost of physically going to and from the gym. Uh, maybe we play about with range of motion because for example, uh, it's, I don't know, uh, an exercise I've been doing of late is, uh, putting my foot on the top of the steps and a kind of step down lower, if you will, that with a couple of kettlebells, the range of motion you get from that, especially on a single leg, just amplifies what little load you do have so much more that it feels like you might as well be using a barbell because it burns like hell. Mm. Um, I wonder, I do recall though, you mentioned the muscle damage. I, I, I vaguely recall reading something, I think it was from Chris Beardsley, about the damage thing. They may have identified it as actually just sort of being a, co a confounding factor as a result of the first two. I don't know whether it's explicitly a, a, um, an instigator of like hypertrophic pathways in itself. I'll find, try and find out where I read that or if I'm just talking nonsense then please ignore me because there is there is also an equal probability that that's the case it it would make a lot of sense though because I think um a post that I saw a post that I saw in the week which I think you'll agree with it said that there's nothing magical about the 8 to 12 rep range for hypertrophy it's just I would very, definitely agree with that it's just a very convenient way of accumulating yeah. the most volume yeah no yeah it's a very it's a nice happy medium um obviously otherwise if you're going to do like sets of like 20 to 25 reps you're going to be going for ages and ages yeah so it's a it's a so yeah pragmatic choice where one can accumulate lots of um productive volume yeah and and in theory there's a million and one ways you can achieve that volume yeah. and just going back to the muscle damage thing I, I can certainly see the logic because let's face it there are so many factors like how many reps you do, how many sets you mm. do, how often a week you train, the range of motion you use, um, the time under tension. Mm. Like there's just so many confounding factors that go into that sort of mixing bowl of overall muscle damage that it's impossible to yeah. say, oh yes, it's the eight yeah. to 12 rep range yeah. that is superior. I mean, like if you, if you <laughs> it's a really bad idea about how, and something that's never going to be done, but if you're going to uh, like try and like, solely um i look at the role of muscle damage i've i don't think i've ever seen anyone like get see being in a car crash being all bashed up and bruised and had all of their muscles bashed all around the place and they've come out jacked you know <laughs> i know that's stupid but like <laughs> there, it could be an experiment done with it involves physically damaging muscle without being you so basically thinking about damage without exposure to tension yeah because that that that's how you that's how you would isolate it because any any of the other either of the other two obviously mechanical tension it's in its name where but and i think anything you do like metabolic stress you're still going to be having you're going to have tension when you move your muscles that's just the nature of how it works so if you could then you'd have to devise some sort of way of like damaging the muscles without exposure to tension to actually sort of separate it out and identify any any pathways involved yeah well, well here's a bit of a 
a potentially complex question that I haven't put in the show notes, so apologies for springing uh, this on you. Uh, but something I've been thinking about for the last few weeks is the role of isometrics uh, and as they relate to hypertrophy, because in theory, so let's take something like um, a wall-assisted handstand push-up lower. So that sounds more complex than what it actually is. But basically, let's say you can't do a handstand push-up with your feet against the wall. You lower to a certain point where physically you're having to really fight hard to maintain that position and not just crumple in a heap. Because in theory, once you get to that static position, the muscle isn't changing length. Length. But I can tell you, if you back up enough volume of that, you know, you feel yeah. you've done some work. Um, but obviously, I'm like, how much damage is done to the muscle if the muscle doesn't change length? I don't know whether this is a stupid thing to say, but it's just something I've been thinking about of late. Possibly. Again, I don't know a great deal about that in terms of the sort of the physiology of how of how muscles behave and damage or don't under sort of like static tension as opposed to dynamic tension. I mean, I'm, I vaguely recall seeing in one of one of I think it's one of Arnold Schwarzenegger's books, like the sort of like sort of history one, but there's about how sort of isometrics were very popular. It's like late fifties, early sixties. Yeah. For people to do at home, you could do obviously because, relatively easy and straightforward of all sorts of different isometrics for all sorts of different muscle groups um in this context i mean it's probably something that we have to have to look to using more frequently in anyone's training because it's something that we can do with that well, i wouldn't call a wall equipment you know uh, <laughs> but you, you 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 get where i'm going though right is the fact that we have to be more creative in our in our search for tension and even if it's not quite what what you're after it's better than none at all absolutely absolutely and i also think um on the subject of isometric stuff um something that i've been playing around with with quite a bit of success in lockdown is um is uh, overloaded eccentric so to give a bit of context as to what they are you basically lower a weight that you physically cannot lift back up by yourself um and as an example um my partner and i trained together and uh, she's literally been clambering on top of me whilst i've been lowering down into a presser uh and for ages she'll hate me for saying this but for ages i thought oh it'd be really cool to be able to do a press-up with uh 60 kilos or whatever on your back um and I was lowering down to a count of, I don't know, three or five um, and doing obviously low volume because you can't tolerate that much because it's in excess of your one or yeah. essentially. Um, but yeah, the other day after playing around with a few weeks of heavy lowers, manage three reps. And you think if that's, if you add roughly what my body weight in a press up is with obviously the external load of 60 kilos, I was coming somewhere between the range of 107 and a half and 117, which is, you know, mm. pretty much where my well, 117 and a half is my best bench. And you think, well, actually I've managed to keep pretty much all of that strength despite having no equipment and just a training yeah. partner. Uh, um, yeah. With, with novel exercises and unusual methods. So, so that let that be is also sort of a, um, some peace of mind for people who are worried about all of their strength evaporating and you're never going to see it again you will see it again and you will be able to, you're just not able to express a lot of it now and it's going to be a lot easier to cover you're going to be covering ground again that you've been through before where it's not like the first time round where you were going in completely new territory right you're you're coming back so like this the way i think about that is a sort of it's 
the first people like to go exploring and like make pathways through the jungle had really really rough time so there's, there's all these sorts of this there's shrubs and horrible animals and such that you have to sort of machete out of your way to get anywhere and it's slow grueling work but then once you've been there like that like some sort of path exists and you can work with that and so even if it's even if it's going to be a while before you revisit that path, there's still going to be the outline of it there. And it's not going to be quite so heavily overgrown as when it was un untouched before. So it's going to be a lot less effortful to get back to where you were because you've, you, because you've at least done it before. If that makes sense. That's a, that's a perfect analogy. And actually um, to add a little bit of context to that, um, I remember it, one of my goals for years was to be able to squat double body weight. Um, I think I was training for about three, maybe four years, and then um, a 70 kilo body weight um, squatted 152 and a half. Um, and that was always, for me, a big goal because all the literature tells you that, that uh, unicorns will come out once you get a double body weight. Squat <laughs> and, uh, whatever, you need, whatever you need in life, the answer is a double body weight squat as far as athleticism is concerned. Um, but no, jokes aside, I, it took me three, four years to get to... 152 uh and then i remember I, I can't remember why i didn't lift for about a month or so um but then started a new job and then did um a dan dan one of dan john's programs which i'll try and find a link to and put in the show notes but his 40 day 40 day program where basically you're training relatively light loads at relatively low volume and within a week i was uh, back to 90 percent. i scored 140 at the end of my first week back in training having not trained for a month so it took me five years to get to a um sorry three to four years to get to a squat that was two times body weight and then within a week i was 90 percent of the way there yeah. so it doesn't just disappear that's, that's a perfect illustration so now we're going to move on to talking about training post lockdown so you're going to get a lot of people who um, either A, I think, wow, gyms are open, let's uh, run to them, and having not really trained in lockdown. Uh, equally, you're going to get athletes who, if their sport in competition or their sport opens up, if you will, where, again, they will flock to the sport and their enthusiasm will be revitalized. So we're just going to talk about um, potential mistakes that people and athletes might want to be uh, wary of. So the first thing that you've the first thing that you've said in the show notes is actually something that I hadn't really thought of um, is the idea of training less frequently um, in the gym itself to mm. minimise potential exposure to um, COVID nineteen. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So this is just oh, this is hypothetical, but I I think it at least makes some sense. And if it doesn't make any sense at all, when I elaborate on it, please correct me or at least let me know and I will stop talking about it. So the idea being that it's basically, it's a, it's an exercise oriented version of work from home. It's like work from home where you can sort of thing. So people are going to want to go back to the gyms when they reopen. So I foresee, see it being very very busy then there there are risks associated being obviously busy crowded areas even with social distancing um in terms of like exposure risk to the virus so the way i would think about it is you would try to construct your training such that you do only what you cannot do at home at the gym say so like if you're going to 
there's like sort of like really heavy deadlifting that you want to do and and the government has got to a point where he said okay people can go back to the gyms probably like do stuff like that at the gyms but then anything else that you can do at home is probably a good idea to do so so if you've got like a little set of of dumbbells or something at home you can do your curls with go and do them there um just things like that or if you've got exercises for your you've got a bunch of tricep exercises but you can do sort of push-up variants to do them do that at home i know we we spoke this um might seem to somewhat contradict the message earlier in the in our conversation about how it's probably beneficial for people to train at a gym as opposed to a um at home um and it kind of does but i think what the earlier reference was to a more sort of like idealized context. Whereas, um, we are in far from idealized, um, um, times. So one has to work around it. Also, one might also consider work training at the gym at a much lower frequency. Like say, so instead of training, going to the gym four times a week, you might just go, go twice a week and try and find something else that, um, you can do on two other days of the week that gets you outside and not inside a crowded gym, such as like, I don't know whatever you could do, cycling, running, just you work, you work with the things that you have. Um, and that probably also serves as a nice sort of wedge in or transition, if you will, from whatever you were doing, like in lockdown, as we head back into um, some semblance of normality is to sort of have a lower training frequency as a means of modulating your volume as well. Cause I think the thing that's also worth thinking about is people, you're probably not going to want to go back to the gym. You've not been doing your proper training for what, three months, three, three months, four months now. So you are going to have some level of sort of detraining or desensitization, at least to the training, go in and hit it. Are you going to be, crippled by soreness i mean that's just sort of par for the course you deal with that but you don't want it to be so bad that you can only go once a week and you're limping around the office or limping around your home or something because it's so bad um you just want to if if you can halve your volume by doing half the number of training sessions you normally would and then as things appear to get under control or back to normality you can sort of yeah say transition your way into a more and more time in the gym and away and less time spent in your, your other activities yeah and although this is certainly does not constitute my advice for going back to the gym no. maybe some people would benefit from training so intensely they actually have to take a day off heaven forbid um mm. you see a lot of people where you're like look you are just wasting your t- you're literally yeah. in here to be in here <laughs> what are you doing yeah yeah and that's really not what you should be doing right now and in terms of so we've made the case for uh training less frequently in terms of training frequency and the fact that people probably it's that age-old saying you know if for example uh your parents say look you can't have a cookie you want that cookie more um what are some of the other issues you've seen with people who for example have been deprived of their favorite hobby in terms of going to the gym and now all of a sudden gyms are open. You're just going to sort of, obviously like an expression, I think it was from, um, 
oh, what's her name? Ilya Ilin, you run around the gym and do all the exercise. He's sort of going at it with just a um, just a bit too much gusto. You lose focus of what you actually really want to do. Um, you do too much, and I and I think the 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 only known correlate for, or at least the made the most important correlate for this population in terms of like injury risk is volume management, especially like is when you compare the old sort of like acute to chronic workload ratio. If you're going to then go back into the gym all gung ho, your acute's going to be here and your chronic's going to be there because you've been sat on the sofa eating Doritos every evening for the last four months or so. So that's, that puts you, there's risks there as well from being too enthusiastic. Yeah, absolutely. And we've kind of, so, so what we effectively kind of allude, are alluding to is almost a, somehow meeting in the middle where your training frequency i guess is in the gym itself is as low as possible yeah um but also your training frequency in total i.e., what you're doing at home what you're doing at the gym is at least something that you are going to adapt to rather than um what's the word you something you're going to adapt to rather than something that's uh, you're really going to be hindered by yeah absolutely so what do you think with that in mind we I, I kind of if this was a blog article people would be like hang on a minute on one hand you're saying this on one hand you say that what you can give a general overview this doesn't have to be super specific but what should people's training look like ignoring for example well not ignoring that would be the wrong way to say but assuming ideal scenario where there is no health risks from mm. uh for example, no health mm. risk from Corona, um, which would be nice, but assuming that that's... would be lovely. That would be <laughs> good. Do you know what? Jim's opening Corona disappearing, just the icing on the cake. Um, assuming that uh, obviously all hypothetical, assuming that isn't a worry. And we're just talking about people returning to training from a long layoff. Um, what should that training look like? What are some sensible steps people can take? Because obviously soreness will be part of the deal as it always yep. is when you return to exercise, having not done a lot, what should people's training look like? I mean, it should still have some semblance to what you were doing before, but with sensible and manageable volume reductions, um, probably to be determined on a case by case basis, depending on how much you've been able to do in the interim. Um, you would be more inclined to sort of focus on your sort of like, work capacity and just sort of really doing if you've re really detrained almost like doing anything in a sense of just making yourself um capable of doing doing the training you want to be doing so yeah it's just that sort of like work capacity um i don't actually think like for a lot of people that that are going to be excited to go back to gyms that aerobic fitness would be something to be worried about because that's obviously one of the main things that people can and have been doing a lot in this interim because you can you've still been able to go for a run or cycle and such um so it's that it's almost like you've got to do, take a like a few weeks to sort of do the training to get ready for the training almost like you could you're not you aren't just going to be able to dive back in right where you were because there's things it's just not it's not it's not a good recipe if you're going to then crush yourself and it's going to feel awful. And there's an, there's the sort of like emotional, um, 
issue behind it as well because if you're going to go in you want to try and like lift the loads that you did before for the sets and reps you did before and it doesn't happen that sort of like can amplify what i alluded to earlier about the sort of like catastrophization like oh my god my strength's gone my muscles disappeared i've turned into some like scrawny skeleton what's happened this is a disaster sort of thing you don't 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 expose yourself to that i mean even if you know that it's happened there's a it, there's a difference when it actually sort of like physically materializes right when you actually experience it firsthand so just don't like go in and try and like i don't think it's worth sort of going back in the gym and sort of doing a um a one rep max just to see where you are or see like how much ground you've lost because i th- i don't think most people aren't emotionally balanced i suppose might be the word or at least just sort of able to take the number as it is rather than go rather than have it as sort of a um sort of like an emotional experience of say oh god i'm so weak now not not just like there's a difference between going like my deadlift one rep max has gone down that that that's the reality of the situation but what that gets interpreted as oh my god i am weak and i'm a terrible person sort of thing so i mean that might sound stupid but there are like there's a lot of people like that for people who like to lift it becomes part of the part of their self and that's that's how they do think and that's how i thought for a long time so just yeah don't expose expose yourself to that do the training for the training gradually work your way in focus on the general capacities um and make the most of the time that you do have access to the facilities and the equipment i think that's an absolutely superb answer um that's probably my favorite part of uh, this uh, podcast episode to be fair because i think it's one of those situations where like <laughs> there's several situations in life where you come across where someone tells you they did something and in your head you're like what good did you possibly think could come mm. of that situation um, yeah like even for example um i imagine there's probably so in powerlifting for those of you who have never trained the rp scale um whether it's rp or reps in reserve something like uh, a single rp8 so that's a single where you could have in theory have done a triple um is something that powerlifters might use regularly in their training and you might think okay I'm going to try a 1RM, but I'm going to have a few reps in the tank. So I might do a single, let's say seven RPE. And there might be people who think, well, you know what? It's not going to ruin me. I'm not going to snap myself in two doing something at seven. That might be a good idea. But the reality is what was a seven when you were training is probably now a 10 or even an 11. Um, And it's funny because in regards to testing the uh, maxes over Christmas, I think I trained like... I think four times over like a month period. And I'll be honest, I did test my uh, 1RMs at um, certain rel- uh, relative intensities. I was quite surprised by, and obviously I was, I'll be honest, I was quite chuffed and surprised how much of my strength I'd maintained given my lack of training. But the reality is no matter how emotionally detached you are from that number, if you identify with the gym and if you identify with marking your progression, that situation in my head, I think it's better off to not test it. Ignorance is bliss and think, yeah, still have the psychology surrounding the, I am X strong, whatever that means to you, than it is to be fully confirmed that you are not that strong. Um, 
and and then worry about it and let that sort of bad attitude bleed into your training when you return yes yes and if there's one thing that probably everybody needs following uh lockdown finishing is probably some kind of consistency and you're not going to get that consistency by the realization that you are worse than what you were yeah yeah you're going to get that. That's going to demotivate you and you don't want to ruin your routines and your, all of that business that we mentioned and covered before. No, absolutely not. And in terms of what training should look like, I would say that it needs to look however hard you think or however easy you think it needs to look like when you come back, make it even easier than that. Yeah. So, or get, so, get someone else to write how easy it should be instead. Cause it's, you, it's easy to overestimate one's capacity and that doesn't necessarily have to be fitness. Like, I know plenty of people who are very bad at judging how long they're going to spend on a given task time-wise as well. So you can find someone else to do that for you and you think that's going to help. That might not necessarily be a bad idea, especially if you've been out of things for a while. Do you think there's going to be a, a paradoxical um, Joe public perception of what they need following lockdown ceasing? So let me give you an example. Um, I imagine there's probably going to be a lot of people who haven't really trained during lockdown and therefore feel guilty for not having done so and therefore feel like they need hard training because they need to make up for the fact that they haven't trained yeah. for the last few months. Yeah, there's, I think that's a good point, actually. If, yeah, there's, just, there's, there's no real making up. That's the thing, there's, there's no real making up for the time that's gone. That The time is gone. And you can, I think you can go and rest easy if you know that you made the, you did what the best you could with what you had. And that's where, and that's something that you can, if you're in that situation, you don't have to worry. But again, I don't think you can really make it up. I mean, like if you like mathematically, I'm sure you could go and sit down, look at your spreadsheets and say, I was supposed to do X amount of volume each week for this many weeks i've i've fallen behind by this much i have this many weeks left of the year and so i have to disperse this much extra volume per week the rest of the year to make to quote unquote make up for it that's not productive that's a waste of time and it may even be so much so that it pushes you over like thresholds for for injury risk and overtraining by that point that's that's just that's an exercise in um spreadsheet wankery i think and it's something that a lot uh, i have fallen victim victim to in the past and thinking that i can plan everything out perfectly in a nice pretty excel sheet ignoring the fact that life actually happens as it wants to rather than according to like cell x x5 on my spreadsheet on that particular day so yeah do you know what it's funny because listening to you there, there's a couple of things that spring to mind. One of them is, I can't remember if this is an analogy in Matthew Walker's Why Do We Sleep or whether I've made this one up myself. Um, if it's good, I'm, I, I made it up. Um, <laughs> but it, it talks about the fact that uh, when it comes to sleep, it's not a case of input equals output. So for example, if I get, uh, let me try and do the maths now, um, put myself on the spot. Right, if I get 14 hours sleep tonight and then I only sleep two hours tomorrow, on average over the last two days, I've slept eight hours a night, which in theory is yeah. reasonably good. But in reality, we know if you sleep two hours a night, it doesn't matter how much sleep you banked. I'm doing yeah. quotations for those of you not watching the video, but it doesn't matter how much sleep you banked. 
because mm. we as human beings are not input equals output. Yeah. The second thing I'm reminded of is um, when me and you first started um, speaking to each other was the programming that I used to do for myself. And the analogy you used was it's very much Frankenstein's monster-esque. And what I mean by that is I take the bits I liked out of one program for say, I don't know, squatting, and then a bench program that I quite liked from another program and stitch those together. Or sometimes what I would do is, let's say, for example, I had to get out of the gym, so I didn't do, I don't know, three sets of chin-ups or whatever it was. I know I'll just shove those three sets of chin-ups in tomorrow when I do a longer session. And if we were simple mechanical inputs or robots, then that might be fine. But the reality is we're human beings, we fatigue, um, not at a linear rate and we can't just simply say, oh, well, I missed out on all of this training. Therefore I'll dump all of that training on top of all this training that I'm now going to do. Yeah. I think to your point about sort of like the input output, I think there's a sort of like a threshold where it's reasonable. And I recall this from uh, the Matthew Walker book you alluded to as well. So it's like, and by threshold. So the example you gave, uh, like 14 hours one night before and then two the following and you say that eight hour average put over the two nights but the two two hour night is still you're still going to feel like garbage afterwards but if it's something like you know you're going to only be able to get six hours sleep so you go and get like nine or ten the pre night before that with a smaller differential i think that's i think that's okay and like you say like if you have to, got the time to do a few sets of chin-ups here, you can probably get they'd be fine to chuck that on later on in the week. So in that sort of like with the small differentials into like sleep or in terms of training, I think that's fine. And a lot of people do have to train like that. Like there's um, oh, Mike Tashira from Reactive Training System. He has this whole sort of like flexible templates um, thing that he he builds for people like that who sometimes like aren't just able to have a like a rigid training structure and he will structure it the exercises he won't give like a day for each one to be done he'll give like priorities to each one so like your um like your like, eight-year priorities might be like your sort of like one at eight squat and five by five back offs at a certain percentage drop um same for like bench and deadlift and that's your priority like the things you always want to get done and then you move down as you go down the tiers, you tend to sort of drop specificity um, as well. And you tend to head, head more into like hypertrophy range stuff like rows and such. Um, and so the training days are going to look different, but over the, over that short, relatively short term sort of cycle, the week, the training week, there's room to wiggle, but over the, you're going to try and like, like hyper compensate over those longer times with larger differentials as is that as would be the case for the person who is going to do the spreadsheet silliness that I alluded to before, that's just not going to pan out. Well, I don't see that being beneficial at all. No. And again, as you said, context is always king. Like in my, in days where I wasn't as well trained as I was now, then I probably could tag stuff on because I wasn't strong enough or I wasn't as well conditioned to bury myself as much as I can mm. uh, for example, when I'm training for competition. Um, whereas once you, as you said, once you pass a threshold, sometimes you look at certain programs, which 
I don't know, is you've got a percentage to hit and a certain amount of reps to hit and you get to a certain strength level and you're like, oh my God, this program is torturous, yet so many people are waxing lyrical about it. Mm. And uh, there's, there's as well, there's for certain programs and certain programming structures that you don't have the liberty to move things around in that way. Like just the, um, the first example of that that comes to mind is something like the sort of the, um, the Texas method is, you know, like has a, is structured over the course of a week. You have a, like a, a volume day, a recovery day and an intensity day. Um, it's a little bit sort of like hyper idealized in terms of how it's laid out. Um, and in theoretically aligned with the um, human recovery cycle, but it illustrates that then you can't, that does not like allow you to say, Oh, I haven't got time. So I'm going to shift this huge, like volume main weekly stimulus, like into my recovery day. Now you're getting muddied signals and then that's going to muffle what happens on further down the line. And it like builds and builds and builds on itself and everything sort of gets out of whack. Just an, just an illustration of, like you don't always have have that wiggle room and especially like in things over the larger scales and more rigid structures that's where it fails and it, it almost goes back to the earlier in the podcast we said about there being nothing magical about the 8 to 12 rep range for hypertrophy it's mm-hmm. just convenient for volume you've almost got to yeah know the rules to break the rules so you might get somebody who has i don't know just come out of uni or just come out of reading the textbook and they're like oh well you did uh, sets of four that's not hypertrophy um, whereas for example, someone might be like, yeah, did a set four, I had a 15 second rest, did another set four, 15 seconds, another mm. set of four. So actually I did 12 reps technically. Yeah. And I lifted a heavier a sort weight. of like a, like a cluster effect sort of thing. Like yeah. Cluster sets. Yeah. Yeah. And in regards to, uh, knowing the rules to so break them. You'll get far more hypertrophy from doing sets of four than doing no sets whatsoever <laughs> of any lifting. Uh, I think people get a little bit lost in in how complicated it really is. Or how simple it should be. Uh, Indeed. Um, In regards to like some simple recommendations. So let's say um, this is the first time I've heard that there are even principles of hypertrophy training. There was me sitting there thinking, oh, I had to do exercise X because this blog told me it was magic or the quote unquote best exercise for legs. And then I couldn't do the best exercise because I didn't have a barbell to back squat. And now, and now you're me, in a wheelchair. And now you're in a wheelchair. And, and now you're telling me I can actually potentially improve slash reduce the amount of muscle mass lost. We've already spoken about the principles, but if we just speak loosely about, uh, let's say somebody wants to create themselves a hypertrophy program in lockdown without getting into the specifics of exercise, let's just talk through a brief overview or a broad overview of what that might look like, whether it's hypertrophy or work capacity. Um, I think, so if you're doing, this is a sort of like home oriented thing. Is that, is that what you want to work towards? Yeah. Or? So in, in theory, if I add a little bit more context, um, mm. going back to a previous example, I mentioned, I vaguely remember you set me something. Uh, I think it was like five sets of 10 of, some leg exercise and I couldn't get to the gym and you were like, well, you can do, for example, uh, a five zero zero tempo Bulgarian spit squat or whatever. So if we just talk about, for example, just basic principles of hypertrophy training as it pertains to say, I don't know, a four week cycle or a weekly session, whatever. So maybe you would think about, I would think you, if you're training at home, you might incline towards 
have to do things with an increased frequency because if you don't have loads with which to um, be one of the variables you adjust to accumulate volume, you're going to have to do have more free. If rather than having like large large spikes of being like bigger, heavier, more intense training sessions, instead of going up there having a longer gap and then up again. You're going to have to do like more frequent little things. So it's going to be like, a, you've got, I would lean towards something that is a more frequent sort of full body get up is what I would, I would work. Or it would at least be the framework that I would start with. Um, yeah. More frequent exposures. Um, how, I mean, how, how specific do you want to go here? Cause that's, I that's mean, it's difficult to say, unless you're course, going to tell me I'm, you, you're going to come to me and tell me like, I, I have been doing this and I want to do this. So, okay. So how, how far do you want to go? Okay. So let's say for example, um, I just had a perfect one in my head and I've lost it. Okay. So how would I know that the, so how many people, for example, they'll go to a personal trainer and, I don't know, they're crawling out of the gym and therefore in this somewhat false assumption that damage must equal progression, in their minds, they're like, I know I had a productive uh, session. So if we're talking about intensity without being able to say the bar weighed X, mm. um, how might that session feel in terms of knowing it was productive? So for example, if I did 10 sets of one bodyweight squat mm. that would not be yeah. hypertrophy and it certainly yeah. probably wouldn't feel like it um how would i know that i'd done enough you've been doing as in you've been doing the right type of work yes. to elicit a hypertrophic stimulus without yes. necessarily you knowing the the load so it's probably going to be you're going to be leaning towards higher rep ranges obviously we've discussed before that they, it's not like it's not like there's a cutoff. It's like the moment you do six reps or more is when you start growing. Otherwise, you're just going to be like a lean string bean and you're going to grow. But the point is, if you, you can expect to be sort of like eight or 10 plus reps and using that sort of like a gauge from failure probably is, is the um, having that sort of like um, internal measurement of intensity. If you obviously haven't got the external measurement of like a bar load, but we know that it's going to have to be a certain at least a certain rep range and at least a certain relative intensity. So like 10 plus and three or fewer reps in reserve for each set is if your, if your session is made up of that, of that kind of work and of, of exercises that are probably more, more so um, I would lean towards like more sort of compound exercises in terms of time efficiency as well, especially if, if you are back at the gym and you have limited time to train or if you you've, uh, have decided to, adopt the work out from home mantra that we um we mentioned earlier on in the podcast um things like that where you're getting a lot of bang for your buck you're working close to but not at failure and it's probably 10 plus sort of reps that regard and with probably with with a higher frequency especially if the loads are not as high that's probably good indicators that you're getting you're doing the right type of work to get back for that yeah, I like that. And I'd also sort of add to it that, for example, um, over the last couple of days, I have gone back into um, almost a hypertrophy-esque, strength-esque bodyweight program. Whereas a couple of weeks prior, I designed a circuit and it was basically this exercise, this exercise, this exercise. Yeah. Um, 
30 seconds on, 15 off. And just to describe how that felt at the time, it was moderately difficult. But in the evening, if I wanted to, I could have easily repeated the circuit. Mm. So I would say that if you're doing hypertrophy stuff at home or in the gym, in all fairness, um, there needs to be, you don't need to be crawling out of the gym. You don't need no. to be not being able to walk up the stairs. But I feel like in the evening of the set day that you trained, you probably need to at least be aware that you did some work. Yes, no, that makes a good sense. If if you feel like you could do it again, that's probably an indicator it wasn't quite hard enough. Yeah, and you want to say you want to go. That was enough, but you don't want to be like a crawling, sweaty, red faced mess either. Yeah, in again, um, I don't know where I've read this from or whether it's even true, um, but I'm sure I've read somewhere that uh, Japanese people eat till they're eighty percent full. Um, mm. So to put that into context, if you were 80% full from your hypertrophy program, you couldn't then go and have another full meal slash yeah. session. No, you, that is, that's a very succinct way of putting it. Yeah, you can't, you're not going to cram another 80% into the remaining 20%, are you? So no, that no. makes perfect sense. No, but you would definitely have room for dessert, aka cup of tea. Oh, there always is. And I got a whole pile of hobnobs. And we started again. Um, last topic we're going to talk about is online coaching, because uh, firstly, this is something that a lot of um, personal trainers who've either been furloughed or run their own businesses um, may well be dipping their hands into. Mm. And it's something that obviously myself and yourself have experienced in the sense of mm. we aren't, we don't have the luck. We haven't previously had the luxury of training in person a lot due to geographic uh, geography geography restrictions um Mm -hmm. so let's just talk about some do's and don'ts either a of coaching people online or b if you're a person who the accountability of a trainer is really what keeps you going and you perhaps don't have that and therefore you are looking for someone to coach you online so in terms of poor practice effective practice if we just sort of talk through our own journey in terms of what we did initially with, for example, the endless WhatsApp conversations mm. to then the model we moved to and why that was more beneficial for both of our um, effectiveness, as it were. Okay, well, so first thing I'm going to say is that if if you are a person who is seeking out someone to sort of like distance coach you, if, if the whole process involves you DMing someone on Instagram, they send you like a Google form to fill out, and then they just like email you a spreadsheet or something like that each week. That's probably garbage. Basically there's gotta be, you've got to have more interaction than that with a, with a client. If you are a, if you are a coach and this is something that, as you say, like uh, people and trainers might be dipping into if they've been furloughed or they can't train their clients in the physical space that they were before, then, the most important thing is to like define get define the expectations clearly up front with your client like of how of what what you expect from the client what the client can expect from you in return and also some clear guidelines and some rules about um communication so that's like so expect you to, whether you're going to like have a phys, like a call with them, whether a video call or a phone call with them each week, or if you want to have more open access to um, instant messaging services, whichever one you choose to use, or if you say you want to have like email check-ins or spreadsheet check-ins, 
there are many, many ways to go about this process. Some suit certain people and certain trainers and certain personality types more than others. But it is the critical thing is to establish with the client what what they're going to get from you and when you can reasonably be contacted. And that's it. That's for the um, that's in the best interest of both you as the trainer and them as the client. Because I know some people tend to go for this sort of like like twenty DMs are open twenty four seven. You can contact me whenever. But I think that's almost doesn't encourage the independence um, and self efficacy of the client that I think the trainer should strive to do because big when especially when you when you that's something you have to build i think when you're working as like an online or a distance coach and you can't physically train them you have to work on making your client as self-sufficient as possible and some some communication practices don't allow you to build that so be upfront with that and establish it clearly it's funny because um on that subject of being self-sufficient I've seen my, my Instagram is littered with uh, ads of find out how this fitness pro went from zero clients to 537 yeah. and, and in coaching fight. And it uses the word coaching. It actually really pisses me off if I'm trying yeah. to be real. Because I'm like, there is a difference between an online program and online coaching. Yes. And yes. not to say that online coaching is automatically superior to online coaching. They are different things designed for different, you know, outcomes if you will mm. um but let's get it clear if somebody has 500 clients they are not online coaching you. no they are they are absolutely not there is no way like, i struggle to do two people at once i'll be honest with you that's because i i like to be as, as involved as i can without stepping on toes basically and like invading invading the client's life you know i like it to be real like it to be like it goes it's beyond coaching and it becomes a conversation so you have if that can't there is no way that that can occur with a um with 537 people at once i think people would struggle to do it with 10 people to do really clear and genuine um coaching that with that many people so that yes there's no chance that that is happening with um with 537 people no absolutely not and also i think to myself that in terms of a 24 7 contact me at 24 7 i'm just like there is no way anyone can deliver upon that promise so i no, think to myself no actually don't promise something that you can't deliver upon if your person is is not sleeping so they can have their dms open then the programs they're going to write for you eventually are garbage anyway so right I'm just going to stop you there one second because there is somebody at my door. Okay, doke. I might be able to continue. Thank you. No, we'll carry on. Um, yeah, so I also think to myself there is an element of um, what are reasonable expectations. As soon as you set the expectation yeah. that it's 24-7 and you, well, obviously you can't deliver on it, I just think that's poor business practice anyway. I think so, yeah. See, I, it's been it's better for both, yeah, both the trait or the the coach, the trainer, and the client to to have a a clear expectation of how the communication is going to go between the two of you. Because if it's just like twenty four seven, it's vague, it's unstructured, and eventually may not end up getting the answers or the advice you actually need. Whereas if it's more structured, then 
you can actually it works better for both of you because then you you as the coach have boundaries and when you are working and when you are not and then the client learns to ask the pertinent questions um and respect your time i think that's certainly something that um, myself and yourself or certainly i was a guilty party in our sort of coach athlete relationship because i would by default ask you questions that i probably could have answered myself um and therefore didn't get the most out of your sort of coaching knowledge that I could have done just by default of being away available or you making yourself available 24 seven as it were. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's easy to just sort of get sort of lost within an en- endless conversation rather than actually keeping it focused on actually get and getting the most out of the time and possibly money that you are paying to work with this person. Yeah, and also I think to myself, there's a difference between it's it's kind of the I suppose the online equivalent of when you watch PTs with their clients. And don't get me wrong, you need to have a good relationship with your client to know how to get the best out of them from a training mm. program. Yeah, but I think, and it sounds maybe a bit inhumane to think I'm only asking you questions if it relates to something that yeah. could affect your training program. But the reality is, yeah. there is no need. For, there is no need for, for example, I don't know, you to know that your client's favourite food is X. Yeah. Actually, maybe there is more of a need, but let's just say their favourite. Yeah, assume we're just talking about training and we're not doing diet or anything like that. There is a, there is such a thing as, as scope of practice. Yes. At the end of the day, it's a scope of practice thing. You're there to be their, their coach for their exercise programme. You do not have to be their life coach and their emotional support. Oh, God, yeah. And it's, e- it's easy to fall in the trap, into the trap of that under the sort of the guise or the self-convincing as like you care about your clients. But that's, a, I say, I think is a scope of practice thing that one should be aware of and don't fall into that and allow people to sort of like overtake your communications and like interrupt your boundaries. No. And there's also the case of, for example, um, I've certainly found that if you don't switch off as a coach, you then you cannot offer the best possible version of yourself, whether it's online or whether it's in mm. those interactions. No, I completely agree there. It's easy to, there's so much to get swamped by as a coach as and even more so as a, as a recreational athlete or as a, just someone who's trying to be fit. So if what you can't get loud, as well as it's as true for the coaches it is for the athletes you can't allow yourself to be pulled in too many directions better to do something that's do a few things well i think than get too scattered and give do yourself and your clients a disservice and i think there's also a danger of both from the coach and the athlete if you open those communication channels 24 7 both of you get lost in the minutiae of training which doesn't matter it's like the client's looking Mm. at i don't know let's say somebody's on the uh leg press for half an hour and they physically can't get onto it or or whatever i don't know and then the client's like waiting for a response because they're stood there yeah so i say coach there's someone on the leg press what should i do that's that's not a situation that should arise in a good online coaching situation in my opinion no there's there's a different there's 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 the boundary of what can be reasonably expected um, from from an online coach, and I think that goes beyond it, at least in the way that I would probably operate things. And like that's one of the things I think is an example of where you you strip 
away the ability for the client to learn sort of like self-efficacy and confidence. Yeah. And, and, and I think ironically by having that 24 seven, um, method of communication, Mm. you then almost put yourself in a position which I would never want to be in, which is where you become the all seeing, all knowing person. Yes. If they didn't say it, it didn't happen or, you know, whatever analogy you want to use. Like sort of guruized almost in in the client's eyes. Exactly. Exactly. Um, And just, just before we sort of wrap up, if there's any, if there was sort of one piece of advice you would give to people in terms of their training during lockdown, we won't talk about specific Mm. cases, but in general, if there was one piece of advice you could give to people for their training during lockdown, what might that be? It is do what you do something, do what you can do it regularly. Keep your routine, stay sane as well as stay safe and just be sensible in your return when when facilities do eventually reopen perfect i think that's a, a brilliant place to leave it charlie and uh, obviously thanks for joining me today mate it's been wonderful always to... a, always wonderful. always a pleasure and uh, i well fingers crossed when this lockdown eventually gets lifted it would be great to catch up properly and actually get a session in should you yeah, ever definitely. <laughs> let's hope so eh the day will come the day will, the come. Day will come i look forward to it Anyway, thank you very much, mate. You're very welcome. I'll speak to you soon. Sayonara. Thank you for listening to the Platform to Perform podcast with myself, Todd Davidson, and our guest in today's episode, uh, Charlie Keane. If you feel you're in position to support the podcast, then head over to www.patreon.com forward slash uh, Todd Davidson P2P coaching where subscribing will give you unlimited access to all of my educational content in relation to strength conditioning and all the programs I've designed to help keep you sane through lockdown. I hope you've enjoyed the episode and I will catch you again uh, in episode uh, 19 where I will be interviewing Andy Bruce of ACB coaching.